from the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. Environmental activists have been around in America since at least the 1890s. They were first called conservationists, think Teddy Roosevelt, and then preservationists. These movements had at their core a concern for wilderness that evolved into concerns around pollution as the Industrial Revolution kicked into high gear. It was a confluence of events around World War II that gave rise to the modern environmental movement, however. The newly affluent post-war generation no longer accepted that environmental destruction was the price of progress. New technologies like the atomic bomb brought new and very unclear environmental damages, and new thought leaders like Rachel Carson brought the concept of ecological well-being home to countless Americans. And of course, the defining environmental challenge of our time is climate change. Today, we're talking about environmental activism. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Paul Wapner. Paul is a professor in the School of International Service. He researches global environmental politics, transnational environmental activism, and environmental ethics. He's the author of several books, including Living Through the End of Nature, The Future of American Environmentalism. Paul, thanks for joining Big World. Thank you for inviting me. I was wondering if we could start out talking about the American public's relationship with nature. You've written that, and I'm using nature with a a capital N, you've written that America has produced an idealized notion of nature. Can you give us a few examples and tell us why you believe that this is a false and and perhaps dangerous narrative? Uh, uh, What I mean by an idealized notion of nature is that we have a received concept of wilderness, and mm-hmm. we often link that with our understandings of nature, such that we think that nature is something completely separate from human beings, that there's this divide. Humans are, one, humans are on one side, nature's on the other side. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's insight there. I mean, there are distinctions to be made in the world and so forth. The problem with that received notion is that it's, if it ever was, it's no longer true. Mm-hmm. We live in an age where humans have mined the, earth, the, cru- the, earth, the uh, Earth's crust. Mm-hmm. We fly through the sky. We uh, go through the waters. Um, there's not, I mean, we have been extracting resources and putting waste into the Earth's ecosystem for so long that there's not a place anymore where you can put your finger and say, ah, untouched by humans. Mm-hmm. Bill McKibben, the environmental writer, uh, termed this the end of nature in a book in 1989. Mm-hmm. And for him, the death nail of nature was really climate change because while human beings were sort of doing all this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. mining and, and toxifying the world and so forth, um, it was climate change which changed the the moisture, the temperature of everywhere on the planet, and so that now there's a human signature on every living and almost every non-living thing that exists, mm-hmm. and so it's not accurate anymore to talk about nature as completely distinct as some pristine place mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, that we can... Uh, um, worry about, let's say, and treat as if we're not implicated in it. And I think that this notion, when we recognize that that old notion of nature is no longer accurate uh, and perhaps no longer helpful, that it calls calls on us to sort of clean our house both inside the city Mm -hmm. and outside the city. The city's not separate from some larger domain, which we traditionally call nature. And I know that there's been a move toward urban conservation 
uh, among environmental groups, and there are steps that people are trying to take to uh, reduce impervious surface and have, um, you know, control runoff to try and control the amount of dangerous chemicals and nitrogen that are getting into the water supply. What you're saying, though, there's always also been this uh, narrative of kind of saving the last wild places, mm. particularly in, in, in America and our idea of the wild places. They always seem to be out west. So is that even still an accurate thing to to try and accomplish, to save the last wild places? Or is what you're saying that really, truly, there's there's nothing that's completely wild anymore? Um, it, no, it doesn't mean that we stop... Uh, working to protect the well-being of other people, mm -hmm. future generations, other species, and the more than human world in general. There is a, although human beings left their, have their signature everywhere, it doesn't mean that everything is human. Mm -hmm. um, even, to take a dramatic example, um, you know, mice that we engineer to grow cancers, you know, which, we, which are basically human artifacts on mm -hmm. so, in, uh, for all intents and purposes, there's still more than the human in there. Mm -hmm. There's still an organism. And so it is important to continue to uh, try to protect what we call the last wild places, mm -hmm. but we should recognize they're not as wild as they used to be. That, that biodiversity piece is so important for all the different systems that, that people may or may not understand. And but at the same time, we can't say that, you know, the most biodiverse places are, are untouched by the human signature. We've, we've just been around. We've done too much. I'm thinking about the Appalachians in particular mm. with um, the biodiversity there, um, in particular um, the salamanders, mm. oddly enough, um, and how their skin is so porous that it, it takes in uh, toxins. Mm. And you can kind of judge the, the health um, of the surrounding environment by, by that. And it, it, it just kind of brings me, it, it sort of, I think, brings home to me what you're saying, which is that, yes, there are wild places, and yes, we need to guard biodiversity, but we can't do so thinking that it's in a test tube somewhere and it's completely protected from what we've already done. Yeah, right? absolutely. Okay. And I would just add, <laughs> that's perfect, beautiful. And I would just add that that also says to us then, the charge of protecting places is not simply to draw a fence around them mm -hmm. and sort of kind of man the or staff the barricades, actually, but it's to recognize our responsibility to these places now that we're implicated mm -hmm. and so forth. And the other thing I would just add about biodiversity um, and the salamanders and so forth is that humans are the governors of evolution right mm -hmm. now. We determine which animals live, which animals die. Um, and it seems to me that is a recognition of our power, and I'm not sure if this is the appropriate way to say this, but um, geographers tell us that we now live in a new geological age. Mm -hmm. We used to we came out of the Holocene, and now we live in the Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. And the Anthropocene is translated as the age of humans. This right. is the age where humans have an ecological or like an ecological force in themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the to me the exciting questions is. How do we protect the environment writ large um, in an age, in an Anthropocene? Right. Or in the Anthropocene. Exactly. So looking at that, thinking about that question, how has environmental activism changed over the past four decades in particular? Hmm. Well, it's changed a lot. Um, I guess like everything in the world, it's changed a lot and it's the same. Uh, it's not quite the same. 
Um, I would say that as you spoke of when you opened this show, you mentioned that environmentalism was at least first a preservationist movement, a conservationist movement, and that um, that in, in many ways it was a nature movement, protect mm -hmm. nature. And that was an important historical moment for the movement itself, uh, but I think that the movement has evolved. It's mm -hmm. woken up to the limitations of of, of of that focus. And what I mean by that is I think that the, the movement has gotten, and sometimes against its will, has had to wake up to the injustices that are part of our interactions with the more than human world. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that if we think about it, human beings rarely solve environmental problems. If you kind of think about what, what do we solve? We, we make them, we create them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but more, more generally what we do is we don't solve them, but we displace them. We mm -hmm. take them from one place, put them somewhere else, or take them from one period of time and put them into the future. We displace problems across species. We actually, as you, with the salamander, mm -hmm. we take our toxicity and we kind of put it into the more than human mm -hmm. world and we ask other beings to um, to suffer it. And if we think about what do future generations, those who live downstream and other species have in common, they all um, have a struggle to have a political voice. Mm -hmm. Future generations don't vote. Those downstream are often not privileged enough right. to be organized. Often they don't speak English and mm -hmm. if the powers that be do speak English, that's a problem. And of course, species have, other species mm -hmm. have this challenge. And so there's a more, I guess there's a long way of saying there's a moral dimension to this. And I think that the environmental movement has, has had to wake up to that. Mm -hmm. um, and associated with that, the environmental movement initially, except for some key people like Rachel Carson and so forth, uh, was a predominantly white male um, movement. Mm -hmm. The heads of all the main environmental organizations, the heads of the Department of Interior, Department of Environmental Protection, um, almost across the board all white men, and therefore had a mandate to focus on, I would say, these nature issues mm -hmm. more than these social justice issues. Right. And so I guess there's a long way saying that if the environmental movement has had to uh, grow up, and I would say that now, like even climate change, we have a climate justice movement now. Mm -hmm. It's not just a climate movement. Paul Wapner, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. Specifically, if you could change the underlying engines of environmental degradation, what would you do? What would you change? What would I change? I would first change this notion that human beings are the center of the universe. That we think that we think basically this is all here for us. We think that the more than human world is just a set of resources or a set of environmental sinks that we can dump into. And that it's called anthropocentrism, but that source of value is has fundamentally perverted our abilities to relate to each other and to the more than human world. So I, first I would basically knock us off the center mm -hmm. in terms of value. The second thing I would do is I would, you know, you've invited big dreaming, mm -hmm. so I would get rid of patriarchy. I mean, patriarchy is fundamental also to the way 
We often gender the earth. We talk about uh, the earth as a female sort of being, and that's not a mistake because in the same ways that human beings have been, or, or maleness has sort of dominated femaleness, we recognize that that has also opened up the kind of uh, opportunity to exploit the, the more than human world. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I would do is I would put, and this is more specific, but I'd put a price on carbon. Mm -hmm. We need to start paying for the goods that we use for free. And we take the atmosphere as a big sort of sink that we can dump anything into and not have to be accountable for. And I think that, not I think, I know that uh, if we started holding ourselves accountable, and I just point to money because that's one quick way to do it. Um, going beyond money though, I think we can also be accountable for our contributions to into the atmosphere um, in other ways as well. I think we need regulation to tell us to stop doing certain things mm -hmm. and start doing other things. I also think we need to stop commodifying everything in our lives. Everything is not simply, I mean, I think we need to price carbon, mm -hmm. but that's not to say that's that commodification is the answer because I'm sure as soon as we price carbon, people are going to think of ways to, to, to pay themselves it. out of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, um, so I would say stop commodifying it. And the fifth thing, is that five? Maybe that's... We'll say that's I, I want to get the fifth is I would bring <laughs> back Dave Brubeck for take five so that he could play yet again that fabulous song that you are um, inviting us to think a lot about. That would be awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Thanks a lot. Paul, you mentioned um, sort of the disparate effects and, and social justice and how that has become a part of, of environmental activism. And the effects of environmental harm have always been felt most by those with the least. And this was true when people living in, in tenements in cities during the Industrial Revolution didn't have access to clean air or water. It's true now when those in the developing world are more likely to live in areas of flooding and sea level rise or drought. Depending on our physical location and socioeconomic status, many people, especially those of us in the U.S., are more removed from the immediate effects of climate change. So, Paul, I was hoping you could talk a bit about your writings on climate suffering, and specifically, where are those canaries in the coal mine, and what do the residents in those places face now and in the immediate future? Yeah, climate suffering. There's an upbeat topic. <laughs> um, so to put it in context, there's, there's generally two ways that people respond to climate change. The first and most important is mitigation. Mm -hmm. Let's just stop contributing to the problem. Right. That certainly hasn't been enough, and that has opened the door to a second form of response, which is adaptation. Mm -hmm. And that is building higher seawalls, um, cultivating drought-resistant crops, and burying electric lines, trying to do things to prepare for a warmer world. Mm. Um, and those are the two categories that most scholars and politicians and so forth um, focus on. I took on some work about climate suffering simply because I think that there's a third category, which is we should mitigate as much as we can. Mm -hmm. We will adapt as much as we can. But 
it's baked into the system that there's going to be inevitable suffering. Mm -hmm. um, the numbers, just the data just suggests that um, we're going to blow through the two degrees which we've mm -hmm. agreed to as a stable kind of uh, threshold. Um, and so I've been trying to think about what what does climate suffering mean and what does it look like? So I, I did some research where I went to where I thought were the frontiers of environmental intensification mm -hmm. or climate intensification. I did some work in Nepal and India, and I spent time with people who are living on the front lines insofar as they were generally uh, non-affluent people mm -hmm. um, living in substandard shelter, mm -hmm. often geographically vulnerable places, and asked them, um, and it did lots of interviews and spent time with them trying to feel what life was like on the edge. And one of the more dramatic experiences I had was in India. I did some work with, with about 20 farmers who uh, uh, a colleague of mine was able to gather them together for an afternoon. And these were subsistence farmers. They were people who were not tied into the market. Um, they farm to live. They farm to mm -hmm. live and trade, mm -hmm. but not really um, marketing producers. Mm -hmm. And um, and we talked, and by then they were they were experiencing at the time the, their fifth straight year of drought, mm -hmm. and they relied on um, on the rains as the form of irrigation. They don't have they didn't practice other forms of irrigation. Um, and so they had five years of drought, and we were talking uh, for a long time about what that was like and how their children felt like there wasn't a future, so they had left the villages where they had lived, um, where they had to switch crops to try to find crops that would withstand the heat and mm -hmm. so forth. And it was fascinating, and I felt incredibly humbled and privileged to be able to spend time with these people, all of them thoughtful, all of them had heard about climate change, even if, even if they had sort of maybe imprecise definitions mm -hmm. of the way I might use the term. Um, and that was in, I want to say that was in April. In June of that year, in the same part of India, the rains finally came. Mm -hmm. And the way it works with climate change is when there's lots of heat, there's evaporation. So there's, it doesn't rain, it doesn't rain, it doesn't mm -hmm. rain. And then when it rains, it's torrential because mm -hmm. there's all that energy in the atmosphere. Right. And that's what happened to this part of India. And so um, thousands of people had died from mudslides. Mm -hmm. Thousands of people had died from these floods that just washed away whole villages. And, and personally, it was a really, I don't know, incredibly troubling time for me because I couldn't, contact these people mm -hmm. email was before the floods there wasn't email right. but um but it really it, it sort of shook me to my core as a researcher kind of thinking you know who who am i and mm -hmm. what, what did i learn and so forth but but more generally i was really touched by the dignity of these folks mm -hmm. when we had talked um and uh and how they had the least i mean nepal for example nepal what ninety eight percent of its energy comes from hydroelectric or cow dung, mm -hmm. um, very little fossil fuels. So in terms of contribution to the problem, essentially nothing. Right. And yet, they're they're ranked as one of the most vulnerable countries, partially for the geography, partially for the poverty, 
um, and partially for the governmental structures that don't provide these social networks of support. But that's sadly what happens to people who um, are on the front lines is that they lack the structures, they lack the shelter, they lack the social networks in terms of governmental they're the last to receive aid mm -hmm. and so forth. And this is not just in India and Nepal. I mean, we've seen the same thing in Hurricane Sandy, mm -hmm. the last people to get re, to get re, um, to get um, compensation mm -hmm. and attention were the ones who least who had the least political ability to kind of grab right. attention and so forth. So anyway, the, um, I see climate suffering as something that's inevitable and something that is gonna require, I think, much more social science work mm -hmm. to understand what it means, ways we can go forward um, without intensifying those injustices. You're such a calm person. I, no. I feel like you have to be calm to do what you do. Um, so it seems that just about every day that there's a headline somewhere that's saying that some element of climate change is past the point of no return or it's worsening faster than expected. And you mentioned the two degrees that we sort of all agreed was going to be okay-ish, and now that's not going to happen either. So in the face of that, is it too late for activism, or is activism, conversely, the only thing that might spur real policy change? Where does activism fit into this? Hmm. Yeah, uh, too late. Um, you know, I, I I wonder oftentimes if we don't do ourselves a disservice by thinking about this in terms of apocalyptic narratives. Mm -hmm. um, because what does too late mean? Um, for me, for the victims of Hurricane Tr Katrina, mm -hmm. it's too late. It's already happened. Right. Uh, what does two degrees mean for the victims of the tsunamis that have happened last year? Right, or, or the, fa the fire in, in California, yeah. Yeah, and so on some level, we have this, we have these threshold numbers, and, and it's certainly true that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us in no uncertain terms that above two degrees, actually above 1.5 mm -hmm. degrees, we're going to see climate feedbacks that are so self-intensifying that um, that we're going to have runaway climate change. Mm -hmm. But again, um, you know, for the people who I interviewed in India, um, two degrees is meaningless. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the one piece of, I suppose, my response. The second thing is that I don't think that, that it's ever a time to throw up our hands and say, you know, there's, there's nothing to be done or that activism isn't important. Um, the the um, the way I guess I think about this is that climate change and other environmental challenges are not puzzles that have some sort of solution set out there, mm -hmm. like an uh, like uh, I don't know a assignment for an economics class, but rather it's part of the human condition now, mm -hmm. and as part of the human condition, it seems incumbent upon us to kind of put our shoulders to the to the grindstone mm -hmm. here and lean into this, if nothing else, for moral reasons. Mm -hmm. And I mean moral both in the sense of addressing some of the injustices we've talked about before, but also moral in terms of what it means to be a human being today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, on some level, we're all mortal. Mm -hmm. We're all going to die. Mm -hmm. Do we throw up our hands and say, oh, well, nothing to be done. I'll just eat cake. Um, I don't 
I don't particularly like cake, so maybe that's a bad <laughs> example. But, but I, I think that the there, there is this engagement that is um, not simply even required, but is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 what I was thinking was, it's almost as if climate change has been positioned as this thing that is an entity into itself, and then climate change will happen unless we do so and so. And what I hear you saying is that climate change is, is, is already going to happen. It's already happening. It certainly is, is a process, but it's more like a chronic illness almost. We're going to have to learn how to manage it and live with it because there's not going to be a day where the earth says, that's it, that's too much climate change, and all the people just disappear. We're all going to be here dealing with the ramifications of what has happened. So we need to learn to consider this a part of our process and a part of our reality. Am I Getting anywhere close to this? Yeah. Like a chronic illness for the earth or something that we have to learn to manage. And like a chronic illness, parts of ourselves are going to be damaged. And Mm -hmm. there are people who are certainly going to be, continue to be on the front lines Mm -hmm. of feeling the effects of this. Um, But as we know, with a chronic illness, as we can manage it with more attention, more care, more dignity, then we can make it less severe, Mm -hmm. less. Um, degrading to individual Mm -hmm. certain types of people and so forth. Um, We can attend to the injustices that are part of this. And we can also um, uh, challenge ourselves to uh, surmount this technologically, economically, politically, and so forth. There's a famous book by a woman named Naomi Klein called This Changes Everything. Mm -hmm. And the, the title speaks of two different meanings here. One is it changes everything because climate change changes as it turns us into this condition, but it also changes everything because to address it requires us to rethink fundamentally our political systems and our economic systems uh, and our technologies. Mm-hmm. Paul, I'm going to try and end on a slightly lighter note. Please. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> Maybe lunch. So it's, today as we're recording this, it's actually a balmy 60-something degrees, uh, even though it's mid-February. But it was quite cold last week, and I'm, I heard you say that you took a, a jump into the Potomac River, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, first of all, why? And second of all, was it on a day like this or a day when it was actually cold? And what's up with that? What are you doing jumping into the Potomac? <laughs> I thought you'd be there with me. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Um, in Georgia, we do swimming pools of 80 degrees, and that is it. Is that right? <laughs> yes. That's right. Well, I have to say, first of all, I am terrified of the cold, and so this was not something I did sort of uh, happily. Um, I, I work with an organization. I don't, I don't work with them. I support an organization uh, called the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, mm-hmm. which is an organization that works in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., mm-hmm addressing climate change right. and um each year they they hold a what's called polar bear plunge oh, in an effort to keep winter cold right and sadly winter as today shows us yeah. it's february 5th and it's mm-hmm. like 60 degrees mm-hmm. or something yep. um and I don't know if you read, but the New York Times just had this long piece on ski areas where, you know, the ski season is getting shorter and right. shorter. And we just see that the climate's changing. And so to draw attention to this and to help raise money for, it's called CCAN, the Chesapeake mm-hmm. Climate Action Network, we about 250 people went down and we um, went into the frigid, and I would say <laughs> it was frigid, uh, Potomac River, 
to dunk ourselves to raise awareness and shake ourselves also, I think, out of a little bit of um, laziness. Mm -hmm. and, and I teach this stuff. I write about it, talk about it endlessly, bum people out endlessly about it. But I feel like there's always more that we can do. Mm -hmm. And this, among some other things that I do, feel really important. Paul Wapner, thank you for joining Big World. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time. 